Living a life of intention starts within. Dora and I are excited to help you find the path to co-mindfulness living through our co-mindfulness masterclass. Our seven co-mindfulness principles will take you on a remarkable path towards health and happiness. For more information and to sign up for the masterclass, visit comindfulnessproject.com. People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. We are very excited about our guest today on Health Gig, Father Billy Byrne, who is first and foremost our friend and our priest, is a native Washingtonian. For eight years, he was the pastor of St. Peter's on Capitol Hill, developing and providing a special ministry for Catholic members of Congress. And currently, Father Bill is now pastor of Our Lady of Mercy Parish in Potomac, Maryland. In 2016, Pope Francis named Father Byrne a missionary of mercy for the Jubilee Year of Mercy. Father Byrne is also a star on YouTube, where he shares videos of his popular Five Things series. And now he can add author to his resume with his new book, Five Things with Father Bill, which is based on his column titled Five Things, which features 50 topics to enhance ordinary days and holidays with insights, reflections, and encouragement. We're so thrilled to have you back on, and we have so much to talk about today. So tell everyone about your new position in the church. So on October 2nd, I got a call from the Pope's representative here in the United States, what's called the Papal Nuncio or the Papal Ambassador. And he called me to say that the Holy Father had named me to be the new Bishop of Springfield, Massachusetts. So I'm moving up there. Now that was great news, except you're not allowed to tell anybody. So (laughs) you get this news that is completely life-changing and it has to stay secret until that time. So it's like, I'm not good at if there's a sale on prime rib at Safeway, I put it around, you know, <laughs> I let people know I'm not good at keeping things. I can keep confession secrets really good. Right, That's, but, right. That's the important ones. I can do the important ones, but things like going to be a bishop in Massachusetts. That's too exciting. I'm, I'm like, no. So uh, then I went up and on the 14th of October, I was announced and met the people there. And then the very next day, my new book, Five Things with Father Bill, came out. So it's been a whirlwind of the last three weeks. Well, it's just so exciting. And everybody in the community where you are now are thrilled for you. So it's just wonderful. Trisha and I love the book and we know it's based on your highly successful YouTube series. We just want to know everything about five things with Father Bill. So I wrote them as a series of articles for the local Catholic paper, the Catholic Standard. My sort of philosophy of my theology, if you will, comes from kind of a strange place. Gary Marshall, you know, he was the producer, director of Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, was once asked why his shows were the way they were, kind of lighthearted. And and he said, most of the people's lives is school and my shows are recess. And (laughs) I believe that faith should be recess, not that it's not important, Recess studies show if kids don't get around and breathe in fresh air and run around and have fun and laugh, then they don't learn as well. So most of life is school. And I believe that our faith lives should be the refreshing, rejuvenating experience of recess, getting out in the sunshine and being with people you love and playing. I try to point out from the daily experiences of our lives 
how God's speaking to us all the time. That if we just can tune in and start to notice, we begin to see these signs of joy and love that we experience, even in the midst of challenging times like a pandemic. That's why the book is subtitled Hope, Humor, and Help for the Soul, because I want people to feel hope right now. Yeah, because it really is a crazy time. And and if you don't have your faith, you can kind of feel really ungrounded. And I think a lot of people feel that. How do you handle that? I mean, life isn't always great, as we just discussed, but what is a bad day for Father Billy? And what's a good day? And how do you deal with your bad days? I would have to say that I tend to be a chronically hopeful person. So my bad days are, I don't really even call them bad days because like if I were to be asked, what's the best day of my life? It'd be right now because it's the only one I've got right now. (laughs) You know, if I spend my life looking in the rearview mirror, I'm going to get in a car accident. And (laughs) if I'm only looking over the next mountain, I'm going to trip and fall right now. So I sort of feel that the capacity of living in the present is essential. This what we would call the sacrament of the present moment. And I think essential to that for me, I wake up and the first thing I do is an hour of meditative prayer. I ground my day in that. And if you are tuning in first thing in the morning to God talking to you, it's way easier to hear him the rest of the day. And how do you end your day? I end my day with prayer also. I play the movie of the day in my head and see where God was and I wasn't, and then make sort of an amendment for the next day to find him in those places. I often think of prayer like, let's say you were going to go into the mall or the grocery store and you're meandering through the aisles and all of a sudden you hear a song you really like being played over the loudspeaker. And up to that moment, you'd never notice that there was even music playing. And it's like, Prayer is focusing on the beautiful music that's actually around us all the time. And so if we can center ourselves in that, it's also, I think, just to give another analogy to it, you two talk to each other all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So you have tons to talk about. You're like, how did your meeting go yesterday? What did (laughs) the doctor's appointment? But, you know, if you're walking down the street and you bump into somebody that you haven't spoken to in a year, you've got nothing to talk about. There's no backstory. You're sort of awkwardly trying to remember if their mother was sick or <laughs> did they have the baby or are they still pregnant or what, you know? And, so um, true. And so, but if you're talking to somebody every day, all up in their mix, you have tons to talk about. And it's the same with our loving God. That is really important. I mean, we have to keep all conversations with people we love and that are important to us going. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> But Father Bill, you're a hopeful person. You live in the present, but you're also hilariously funny. (laughs) And your YouTubes are funny and your book is funny. And it seems as though you reach people through your humor. How important is humor in our lives? Oh, it's essential. It's, It's a type of prayer because it gives us a perspective. Good, funny, happy humor takes us out of ourselves. There's nothing better than an I Love Lucy episode. (laughs) Just see what happens if our snooping goes to the wrong extent or our gossip goes too far or the good TV of an Andy Griffith show where you really do laugh at the sort of everydayness of life. To help people see that and realize it, we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take God very seriously. Then we have a pretty healthy perspective on things. So when you think of God or see God, do you see him as the father? I mean. What do you visualize when you think of God or when you talk about God? 
Well, as soon as we start trying to put God into a box, we stop talking about God. He first reveals himself in the Judeo-Christian tradition as being. Who are you? I am. And so we realize that to be in God is just to be in a sense of being. But I also, as a Christian, believe that he manifests himself, that he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, true God and true man. And so for me, I always relate most easily to that revelation. And for me, that's the easiest and most powerful Because as a person of faith, as a Christian, we don't believe in a book. We don't believe in a set of laws. We don't believe in the principles of life. Those are all sort of part of what we are. We believe in a relationship, in a personal relationship. So the more that we are personal and allow ourselves to be known personally, then we can more fully enter into that who is supremely other that we call God. So we want to talk about your book. We all need inspiration and advice. And I always, and Tricia knows this, my mom just was full of advice all the time, (laughs) but it was always good to get her advice. And so what we're excited about is that people are going to have a chance to get your advice and your inspiration. What we love about it is it's bite-sized pieces. It's not a lecture, which (laughs) we don't want, but it's just the right amount of advice. How did you come up with that format? Well, you know, we have five fingers on a hand. It's a, sort of the easiest thing. I've always liked the number five, as I say <laughs> in the introduction, for no coherent reason. But like you said, it's digestible. So each chapter is a standalone thing. You can thumb the book and say, oh, this is interesting. And so that's really the idea that it was just enough meat, but not too much. And by the way, I think you're right to take your mother's advice because she was a <laughs> wonderful, smart lady. <laughs> Really funny. Speaking of advice, let's just get into the book right now. And you and Trisha and I were all dog lovers. The first chapter of your book begins with the five things you learned from your dog, Maggie. And then you end the book with the things that you learned from your new puppy. So can you tell us the advice we can get from our dogs? Well, you know, we spend so much time with them and yet they never get sick of us. You know, it seems like that's the only category of being in my life that doesn't get sick of me, I think. But also, you know, dogs, they have this capacity of non-judgment. So if I'm late from something coming home, my dog doesn't slam the door or roll their eyes or have their paws across their chest. She's thrilled to see me. How often does that happen? If I say, get in the car, let's go. She didn't say, okay, before we go, how long are we going to be there? How long is it going to take? She's just excited to be with me. My dog, Zelly, right now, or Maggie, that I originally wrote this about, I'm her world. She's just happy to be wherever I am. And if I had that same dependence on God, could you imagine if I could be as good as my dog is to me, to God, I would be a saint. The dogs teach me how to be a better believer. So true. And then you talk in chapter two about being an XXL priest. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? (laughs) That's it. Exactly. I think I'm not talking, you know, about my girth, although I I am an XL priest in that. But I'm talking about extra, extra loving, you know? Yeah. And I think if we could be extra, extra loving, you know, I think it's all based in a sense of gratitude. So often we look at what's wrong in the world. Instead of doing that, we need to look at all the good that's come. Even just in COVID experience, complaining about it 
doesn't make things better. It just annoys everybody around us. One of the things that I did do, and I have to say, I canceled cable two years ago because it was just creating anxiety in my life. Mm-hmm. The news cycles and everything, if I need to, I skim the newspapers. If there's something I need to know, I'll find it out. But that helps me focus on gratitude. Also, I think especially in this time, we forget all the people that we need to be grateful for. You know, we see it right now with all the workers in the pandemic, but just the people that do the jobs that I wouldn't want to do, but yet they're willing to go and climb in a manhole so that I can have fresh water. You know, things like that. It's like, hello, we should be going up to all these people and having that extra, extra loving gratitude. And also one of the things I think we just can't forget is not just the things that we see, but the things that we don't see. And I am very connected to my guardian angel. I believe that each of us have an angel that watches over it. Those little whispers of like, hey, that's a good thing. You need to call somebody up. Sometimes we ignore it. But when we do, almost always the person says, I needed to hear from you. I'm so glad you called. That little, just pick up the phone. That's your guardian angel. When you're opening the refrigerator and there's brownie and a broccoli, and you are (laughs) reaching for the brownie, and the guardian angel says, broccoli, broccoli. <laughs> I ignore it very often. Uh, oh. The sense of helping me live with a grateful heart is the answer to how we bring love into the world. Extra, extra loving. And boy, do we need it now more oh. than ever. So your guardian angel, how does he or she come to you? Do you see them? Or does she or he come through other people? Or I think it's the urgings of our heart. You know, God has given us some sense of his own life. It speaks to how personalized God's love is, that God doesn't just love us in general. Like, oh, I love all these people. No, no, no. God called us from the beginning of time that when he was putting the sun in the sky and the stars and swimming things, he said, someday I'm going to make this magnificent Doro. I'm going to make this fabulous Trisha. I'm going to give the world this particular gift. He calls us individually in this unique DNA. Even twins that have the same DNA are different that he's given life to. And so the guardian angel helps me realize that God's not just watching over me in general. You know, God's not like the president of a university where he sort of hopes everybody's doing well. And maybe he knows some of the students by name, but on the whole, you know, he's more interested in policy. You know, and God is like in the mix of my everyday. He cares about my parking spaces. Yeah, the little things. The little things. It's so true. I mean, okay, I'm not trying to be funny, but it is kind of funny. Like every time I have the urge to go to Ben and Jerry's and I sometimes might be on the way, (laughs) I see a really large obese person (laughs) and I really take that as a message. I say, I know, God, you're trying to say something to me right now. And I never thought of it as my guardian angel until right now, but I will going forward. Well, you know, it's a good system in the old church calendar. Things would be big feasts like Christmas and Easter and things like that. And then there would be sort of feasts that were big, but not quite as big, like St. Joseph or something like that. And then there was every day. And so you saved your Ben and Jerry's for those moments that were big days because God wants you to eat Ben and Jerry's. And he doesn't want people to go out of business because... Doro's having visions of fat ladies. (laughs) He wants it to be a healthy balance. Yeah, that's That's the hard part. Another thing my dog teaches me is balance. 
I like to eat. She likes to eat. She likes to walk. I need to walk. Father, how do we get ready for heaven? Mm, By bringing heaven here to earth. If we're preparing ourselves for the fullness of love, let's do it by bringing as much love as we can right now here. I had recently two sudden young funerals of guys who just dropped out of a heart attack in their 50s and early 60s. Both cases, the last thing that the wife said to the husband was, I love you. And imagine if the last thing she said was, oh, we'll talk about that when you get home or something like that. And you think, even if you're still mad at the person, say, I'm still mad at you, but I love you. You know, (laughs) that's a good thing to have our last message be. You're saying bring heaven here on earth and just live as if this is heaven or? No, I'm saying we all know it's not heaven. (laughs) We know it's a wounded place. We know it's got a lot of wounded people in it, including ourselves. It's like Pope Francis when they asked him, tell us about yourself. And he said, who are you? And he said, I am a sinner in need of God's love. But if we realize that, you know, if we say, okay, I've got my wounds, we all do. And I can either be a wounded wounder, or I could be, as Henri Nouwen said, a wounded healer. If we're trying to make life a little more joyful for people, we're going to know joy. St. John of the Cross, a great Spanish mystic from like probably about the 16th century, he said, if you come into a place and you don't find love, bring love and then you'll find it. Mm. And that is our message. We need to bring love so that we can find it. So what about purgatory? What can you tell us about it? I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Our belief in purgatory, you know, is that we might die while still holding on to things, you know, and heaven is a grudge-free zone. And if we die and we want God's love, but we're not quite there, that's the gift that the Lord gives us of ascending the mountain, if you will, but letting go of the things that hold us back. And so that's why I believe, and the church believes that it's the power of praying for those who have gone before us is the most particular gift that we can give them, to send them, surround them with love from behind, and then those in heaven are calling them forth into that love. I once did the Marine Corps 10K, and you finish going up the hill in Arlington towards the Iwo Jima Memorial. I'm not a runner. I didn't like running. I did it sort of as a dare and then got kind of trapped, like I couldn't back out. They were saying, you've got to go faster because the marathon people are catching up to you. (laughs) As you ascend the final hill, the hill is surrounded on either side by these young Marines. And you're running up a hill, the last thing you feel like doing, but they're screaming to you, finish strong, finish strong. (laughs) And so I was purging every (laughs) Ben and Jerry's that I had had in the last four months. And But yet their shouts, their prayers for me, if you will, were spurning me on to make it to the finish line. So I would say, you know, if you want to plant a tree for me when I'm dead, that's great. But I'd much rather have you pray for me. And then you can pray around my tree or whatever. (laughs) One of the things in life that is very hard is to forgive. Sometimes I have trouble with this. And you have a chapter devoted to forgiveness. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that, first of all, When we don't forgive, it's a burden that we bear. Mm -hmm. And this is a difficult situation because when we have people that we might need to forgive who are dead, it's not like you can confront every situation and then the person slaps their head and says, oh, you were right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But it is to say, okay, I've got to not carry this burden around because it's my burden. It's my weight. 
and it's keeping me from loving more freely. When Jesus says, love your enemies, how do you do that? What does that even mean? What We have to first understand what love really is. Love, as Aristotle reminds us, is willing the good of the other without anything expected in return. You all had your kids, you were up at three in the morning with them throwing up or whatever. You weren't there saying, oh, you're going to pay me back for this. You're going to owe me big. No, you wouldn't be anywhere else in the world. You were just loving them in the midst of this time. So to love somebody that has hurt you means that you recognize, you say, I will the good for them as God knows it. And maybe that's healing in their lives that would cause them to hurt. Maybe that's a justice. Maybe that's for them to face what they've done. But you and I can't name what we think they need. You have to leave that up to God, but say, God, I want the best for them so that whatever happens, they don't hurt people again, or that they aren't held back by their woundedness or their sadness. And so in doing so, from your wound, instead of bitterness, you're bringing blessing. And then all of a sudden, that's the healing right there. If blessing is flowing from you, then it starts to heal. And it comes through willing the good of the other as other, without any expectation in return. What about self-forgiveness? Self-forgiveness is way harder. It really is. the difference between guilt and shame, you know, we have nerve endings on our fingers so that if I were to put my finger into a candle flame or on the stove, the nerve endings would send a message to say, ouch, remove your hand. All right. Well, we have a conscience that's part of who we are as our soul. And the conscience is like our nerve endings. So if we've done something and we feel bad about it, that's a good thing. It's healthy to feel guilty. And then from that, we seek forgiveness, whether it be forgiveness of God or forgiveness of others. Shame is when we fail to forgive ourselves. It's the sort of ugly side where we allow ourselves not to be forgiven, either by God or by ourselves. It's almost as if it were pride, which is sort of a self-centeredness, but like an upside-down ugliness. The interesting thing that happens in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat that fruit. And basically, that's a symbol of like his all-powerfulness. He can do everything, and we can do almost everything, but not everything. It's the limitations of where we are as in the image of God. So when he says, don't eat that fruit, and then we do it, that relationship is broken. The temptation was to be God. The first thing that happened was they were naked and they were ashamed. That suddenly the first effect of being disconnected from God was self-hatred. All of a sudden, self-hatred. When we stop experiencing the loving gaze of God, when we stop experiencing the power of our being known and being loved and being called, then we start to hate ourselves. And if I can hate me, guess who else I can hate? All of you all, you know? (laughs) This is where we need to trace it back to, this sense of shame where we have allowed ourselves to be disconnected from our own createdness, if you will, and our own sense of God's mercy and God's healing. This is what good therapy is about. It's not just about prayer. Sometimes we need to go back and find some of those initial wounds and really start to heal the 12-year-old me because those ripple effects pull themselves through our lives. Mm -hmm. 
In chapter 34, you talk about confession and learning to love confession. Does this tie into that? People always say that about the Catholic Church, the Catholic guilt, and I think that's kind of baloney. It should be Catholic forgiveness. There's something incredibly cathartic about knowing that God has forgiven us. And our Catholic belief is that Jesus gave to the church. He said, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. And so we could walk around and say, God, I'm sorry. But this visible sign of actually hearing the words of forgiveness are palpable for us to know, okay, I've actually gotten this off of my chest, both literally and figuratively, and now I'm leaving it behind. I think that it's helpful to think from what is sin? Sin is not who we are, or bad things we do is not who we are. It's who we're not. So every time that I act in a way that is not of the dignity of my person, then I'm not acting to be me. I'm acting to be not me. People walk around with this not me trailing them around and bossing them around. And the idea is that confession is about destroying the not you and restoring you. St. Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian, said, mercy is God taking us from non-being to being. Let me repeat that. Mercy is God taking us from not being fully alive, not being who we are, not who we can be, to fully being who we are. That's what mercy is. And that's even our mercy towards other people. It's about restoring people to being who they can be. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the challenge of a parent. Forgiving their child is to try and take them from their unpotential to their full potential. That's the idea. Is It's about recognizing and pulling forth, moving ourselves beyond shame to fullness of life. Irenaeus, one of the great saints, says, the glory of God is human beings most fully alive. The glory of God is human beings, men and women, being fully alive. When we are at our best in terms of how we love and how we heal and bringing joy, all the things we've talked about, God is glorified in that. Yeah, always looking for the best in other people and ourselves. Mm-hmm, exactly. Speaking of self-improvement, you have a chapter that talks about transforming our birthdays into milestones of self-improvement, which I thought was a great way to celebrate your birthday. (laughs) Tell us about that. Again, looking forward or looking back as opposed to being present to who we are and where we are in our lives. And if we can start living in that, I quote Cardinal Van Thuan, he was a Vietnamese fascinating guy, Archbishop of Hanoi in the 70s just taken and put into prison for 13 years, nine of which were in solitary confinement. At first, he was so angry because the guards right outside the door would never speak to him. And then he was getting so angry about it. And then he realized, no, 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 no. I have to meet that with love. And he started every day singing to them. And before long, they started asking him to teach them the songs. Then they asked him to teach Latin. You know, it was like this whole engagement in the midst. And this is a guy who's in solitary confinement for nine years without any trial, without anything. And it just always teaches me that if we put on a uniform of love every day, then the year is going to be a fabulous year. Hopefully this year of pandemic has also been a year of family. These college kids at home and millennials suddenly living back with their parents. And I've seen blessings come in people's experience from that. And I just hope we keep that up. One of the great things in my birthday gifts, I quote Pope Francis, who is constantly calling us to be mindful of the poor. 
I had a sort of an awakening one day. I was reading one of the Gospels, and I thought to myself, it was about, did you clothe me when I was naked? Did you feed me when I was hungry? And I thought, how much do I spend on my dog versus how much do I spend on the poor? And I make my checks out. I give to different things. But suddenly I was convicted, and I thought, oh, my gosh. And so I really doubled down and researched places that I found that were doing the kind of work that I believed in with regard to the poor. And I use that as a sort of annual thing to just sort of say, I need to recommit my that. And then the ultimate thing is just to make sure that we're focusing on joy, you know? Just the idea that, and if you can reframe your stories, and you talk about that in forgiveness too in your chapter, that it's important to sort of reframe things, reframing our birthdays and the fact that we're really lucky to be here. That we get right. to celebrate a new year, you know, and that's a gift, you right. know, and looking at it like that versus, oh gosh, you know, more <laughs> wrinkles. And... <laughs> Could you talk about how we can live together as children of God? And I think you've talked a lot about it during the podcast about love. But could you summarize what would be good advice for all of us to continue on? Like you said, not to forget some of the lessons we've learned. With the growing awareness of racism in our own culture, and I look at my own life experience and I look at the number of gifts that I had that really did give me advantages that I wasn't aware of until I stop and I see people who are acutely aware of their own disadvantage. And I allowed myself to be challenged by their voices. And even if it was erupting in violence, I had a good priest friend who was beaten up in front of his church in D.C., that first reaction is anger, but also this awareness that I also had to realize I was never in a situation where I was exposed to anything like that. I've only known really great education with really great educators and people that knew and gave me hands. And so I think that sort of motivated me to understand that God made us in his image and likeness. And that includes all colors, all races, every type of person in the world. And part of our iconography of God that we were surrounded by is like sort of the old white guy or the blue-eyed Jesus, all of which sort of distorts this idea of who God is and that God's not white or black, but that Jesus didn't look very much like me. He was not a green-eyed, red-faced Irishman. And that was God's supreme revelation. As I went on about that idea that the shame can pull us apart of ourselves and from each other, and I think that Self-hatred is part of the reason why we see so much ugliness in the world. When ugliness entered the world and hate entered the world, we realized we have an extra charge to love. Dorothy, I quote in the book, Servant of God, Dorothy Day, who if you don't know anything about her, she's fascinating. A convert, she lived a life as a radical, had a conversion. She actually had an abortion. Her cause is up for sainthood. But she went and worked in the neighborhoods with the poorest of the poor in the Catholic worker movement. But she said, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Mm. I only love God as much as the person that I love the least. So it's like, oh, okay, I love my mom. I love my best friend. I love you all. Easy peasy. Right. But what about the people that I love least? And that's where I need to start my focus, to let my love, God's love, flow through me to them. And I think that we have to realize that everything we have is gift, and that if we want to transform places in our own lives, and our own families, we have to ask God for those gifts. Let him be the one. And if we just try to manufacture it, it's going to be fake. What we really need to do is to say, okay, let me know that love so I may share that love. 
and that it's always divine initiative. Finally, I think when we go back to that story again of Genesis, where the serpent says, oh, if you eat this fruit, if you break your relation to God, then you'll be like God. And it's kind of a good piece to think about, that if you are trying to get advice from either A, God, or B, an evil snake, believe God. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so the voice that's calling you to forgiveness is probably the voice of God. Because there's a lot of lies in the world. We become so used to it. It's pathetic. You know, if you read the paper, you're thumbing through it, and you hear about a drive-by shooting of a child being killed, you say, oh, that's horrible. And then you scroll up to the next story, as opposed to saying, why am I used to this now? It's like there was this sort of a toxicity. And that's what I believe, that when God came to save us, he pulled us out of the muck and said, none of this is normal. Okay, this isn't normal. So don't stop pretending like it is. That's why we have to recognize the toxicity of the world and really fight against it. Trisha and I think everyone should buy five things with Father Bill. And what I love most about your book is that when you read it, you will feel closer to God or you'll know that God is nearby, as you say, on the jacket cover. So this is something that we all need and we highly recommend it. And we thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I just love seeing you all. I miss <laughs> you so much. God bless you all. See you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. To learn more on how to live a co-mindfulness life, visit comindfulnessproject.com.